0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yusem, Jeffrey Klein, and Ann Greenhall.
1: Indeed, that is us Leadership in Action. As you've just heard, Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, we're channel 111 of course. I'm your host, Mike Yuseem. I'm the director of the Center for Leadership and Change here at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I'm in the studio with Jeff Klein, good friend and executive director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program, also at Wharton. Ann Greenhalgh has the night off, and we're happy now to welcome our guests for this part of the program. They are John Byrd and Jennifer McCollum, co-authors of a book. Really intriguing title, Jeff. One Day, One Night. Portraits of the South Pole It is an account of a year Got that one day and one night That's pretty much what happens when you're at the South Pole Six months a day and six months a night They were there for a year And they lived with 50 other researchers At the South Pole At what's called the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station So with that I want to welcome uh, John and Jennifer to the program Great to have you with us tonight Hi
2: Mike, Yeah. thanks for having us Hi, thanks so much
1: Uh, Well, thank you for uh, coming on, of course. And uh, Jeff and I, or many of our listeners, are really intrigued just with the starting notion of going to Antarctica. So if you can put us on an airplane with you and you fly uh, probably either from New Zealand, I think you actually, in one case, did fly down from New Zealand or from the tip of Chile or Argentina, uh, a couple-hour flight, and suddenly there you are. So what's it feel like to arrive? Let's make it the first time in Antarctica. Uh, Jennifer, why don't we start with you?
0: Sure, well, um, it, it, it all started, uh, we arrived in McMurdo Station, and we had to huh. uh, go through bag drag, which is checking in our baggage, um, hmm. to get to the South Pole, and of course, I was way overweight, so I stuffed my pockets, my parka pockets full of the, my heaviest stuff and my carry-on, and then and then boarded the plane. And uh, when I, uh, we uh, landed at the South Pole, um, now you have to, uh, we, we were flying with the Air National Guard, so there was actually no aisle. We were in a uh, webbing seating with our knees against each other, facing each other. So I remember a crewman marching across our knees to get to the back of the airplane, and they, they shockingly to me opened up the back of the airplane and then they shoved all our luggage out the back door, and then when we stopped they stopped the plane, I tried to stand up, and I could barely stand I was just because of the altitude and then when I got to the door, it was like black flies, a swarm of black flies with razor teeth bit were biting me. it was just nothing like the cold I'd ever experienced and then when I got out, the sunshine it was just this brilliant plane of ice and this huge vault of blue sky and then and I lifted my face to the sun and there was rainbows and, and then I looked in the distance and there was the dome uh, the geodesic dome uh, so it, it was incredible
1: Jennifer that was wonderful John how about your own reactions as you
2: arrived? Well as, as Jennifer described we first had to fly from uh, New Zealand as as you guessed to uh, McMurdo Station which is on the coast of Antarctica and on my, my first uh, attempt to fly down there they had to uh, turn around and come back at the halfway point, and with these so-called boomerang flights, where hmm. the, the weather isn't good enough to land, but they they make an attempt for it anyway, and then when you're approximately halfway, you have to decide, uh, are you going to go for landing, or are you going to take the fuel you've got and get back to New Zealand? So we had to fly back to New Zealand because the weather wasn't good enough at the landing field at the, at the coast of Antarctica. Anyway, so this mm. this happened several times. Actually, for a whole week, this went on because various reasons they they couldn't make it in. There was communications problems with the aircraft, and anyway, finally we did get through to McMurdo, which is the staging point for Antarctica, for the United States uh, Antarctic program. And uh, this mm. little uh, station is—it's like a small town. It's mm-hmm. a station.
1: And uh, John, we're going to get. Uh going more generally in just a few minutes on what you were doing there, but kind of backing up to the moment before you arrived, the moment, the time before you even got on the airplane, uh, what led, let's start with you, John, what led to your decision to commit to a full year uh, in Antarctica?
2: Well, I've been trying to uh, get off to Mars, but of course that wasn't too feasible, (laughs) But in the meantime, I'd, I had finished a lot of the uh, the training, which is equivalent to going to Mars. I worked for months at a time uh, at a similar base up at the North Pole where we were running laser experiments to study the atmosphere. And so I viewed it as a really great opportunity to go down and participate in the research and to see what else is happening down there in terms of the atmospheric and astrophysical research, it was really a matter of convincing Jennifer.
1: Hmm. All right, Jennifer, what what's your side of the story there?
0: Well, I, I, I specifically remember uh, I was uh, doing my uh, master's in music composition uh, at York University in Toronto, and I remember coming home one day, and John was like, do you want to move to the South Pole for a year? And it's like, what <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking you're, about, yeah you know? right oh, like you're yeah, kidding, really of course <laughs> I, I was just gonna ask you that <laughs> <laughs> and and, it, and it's like, I mean, I hadn't really ever thought about the South Pole, you know, it it wasn't really on my radar, you know, I, mean, I was pretty busy doing stuff, but uh,
1: at least he uh, didn't say Mars.
0: You well, know, anyways, and he said, "Well, actually, uh, my old PhD uh, supervisor, now the University of Illinois, he asked if I wanted to go there for a year, and I, I, I wouldn't go unless you, you were willing to go too." And and I was kind of like, "Uh," and he said, "Well, uh, you better start applying, and and then you can think about it while you start applying." And it's like, "Okay," <laughs> so um, because I had to apply for a job too, um, but. I, I did think about it, and I basically came to the conclusion that well, his childhood dream was to go to Mars, and and the South Pole has got to be the closest thing to it on Earth. And 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 I'm I'm one of those people that I don't know what I'm getting into, and I say, sure, why not? Let's go.
1: Uh, take a chance, uh, live dangerously, huh? So, yeah, pretty much. Uh, uh, and one last question. One last question for me, just to set the stage, and I'm going to pass the baton over to Jeff here just say a few words if you each would. Let's start with you, Jennifer, on what you had planned to do for that year. You were there for a purpose, of course. What was the purpose in each case? So, Jennifer, beginning with you.
0: I got a job as a dishwasher.
1: That that, that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> there it is. John, how about you?
2: Okay, well, I, I can uh, add to, uh, to Jennifer's comment that he, even though she was hired as a dishwasher officially, she did have a uh, lot of experience working in kitchens as, as a, a cook, and they did need as much as help as possible. So, she was really um, gearing up to help out with the, the cooking as well. Yep, terrific. And um, Anyway, in the meantime, I was hired as a scientist to study the upper atmosphere at the south pole using lasers. So, the idea was to study the southern lights, which is the aurora australis and to study the ozone layer in the upper atmosphere. And have you ever seen the aurora?
1: Indeed, I think we both have. Yeah.
2: Yeah, at the South Pole, it's really spectacular. You're right underneath it, so it's a unique venue in terms of an opportunity to study the aurora. And so I was running experiments that were similar to what I'd been doing up at the North Pole. And so they had just Set up the experiments in the summer, and then they had me there to operate the lasers during the winter. Hmm.
1: Terrific, thank you.
3: All right. Well, and and this is Jeff. I'm delighted to talk with both of you, um, and and envious um, for sure. One of the things you should know about uh, Mike and I, and and some of the programs that we run here at Wharton is we actually have a uh, a program called our Wharton Leadership Ventures, which are outdoor expeditions uh, and for probably close to 15 years now we've taken groups of MBA students to King George Island uh, down in Antarctica and so um, a little bit of kindred spirit here and I've often thought to myself wow uh, what an experience it would be a if we weren't responsible for a group of 40 students right now and B if we could spend a little more time here and really uh, you know really understand uh, at a lot greater depth Uh, the the amazing environment that it is so uh, I I wanted to add that and I wanted to say thanks for for joining us tonight now that the question because you know Mike and I focus on on leadership we focus on teamwork uh, on decision making I guess maybe my first question for you is is once you've gotten past the point of okay John Jennifer you're you're both willing to do this um, what where do you turn to sort of prepare um what kind of what kind of information were you seeking what kind of advice did you get about you know what it would be like um and and what could help you thrive in this kind of environment for a year and John maybe we'll start with you here
2: okay well it's an excellent point because they do recognize the need for physical testing because they don't want to have any medical problems down there and mm-hmm. as well Psychological testing and, and uh, team building and team bonding. And so one of the first things they did was to uh, send Jennifer, she can tell you more about it, they sent her out to a so-called ropes course out in Denver where they're climbing in through the forest and uh, learning how to, to bond as a, as a team.
3: And, and Jennifer, is this with... Uh with people you'll eventually be working with, or is this more of a, a like an assessment type uh, center for uh, the researchers to understand you?
0: Ah, um, it was it was um, an outward bound course, okay. and they uh, held it um, a couple hours outside of Denver at an elevation of ten thousand feet, so a similar altitude to the South Pole, and they just had us doing you know just. Kind of forest group activities, working together, and yes, the vast majority of the people there I worked with. There was a couple of people eliminated um, in psychological testing.
3: Mm-hmm. Got it. And what um, what did you start to learn both about yourself as well as um, your your about to be coworkers um, through a process like that?
0: Um, i they, they were pretty ordinary people. You know, I I, I mean, I mean, they're they're there are people who wanted to live at the South Pole, so I mean, there there a lot of them were travelers. Um, quite a high percentage of people were pilots.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I just I don't really remember anything really dramatic, other than it was you know fun to talk about them. Like I I met one of the scientists and discovered that. Um, that they manufactured liquid nitrogen at the South Pole, so I immediately made the connection of making uh, frozen yogurt, and uh, <laughs> and and he's like, oh, of course you can have some, <laughs> and uh, just and I just remember standing um, with with a couple of the people and looking up at the night sky and talking about the constellations, and it was it was just it it's it's always fun to meet people, and uh, it yeah it was it was just it was pretty fun going there mhm mhm
3: and i Im- i imagine it also accelerates the uh uh you know your your recognition of the reality that this is happening too
0: yes that's for sure yeah yes there was there was a real and, and it's amazing we we had we we had i think barely a couple of months which may sound mm-hmm. like a lot of time but it isn't much when you have to suddenly pack your pack up all your belongings, move out, hand in your keys, figure out what to do with taxes, um, you know find an accountant, uh, redirect your mail, and figure out what to take for a year and, and honestly, they didn't give us that they didn't really give us a lot of guidance there It was pretty much here's your weight limit, and you know basically take what you you'll need for a year, you know you have to take all your toothpaste and your shampoo and
3: mm-hmm. you know, and, and if you forgot something, is that uh, you just call Amazon and they deliver, or how does that work?
0: Uh, well, that's a very good question. It, um, yes, um, Amazon, or, or or mail order, certainly mail order, uh, during the... So when we arrived, we arrived at the start of summer, so there's uh, two seasons at the South Pole. There's summer and winter. And, light, and,
3: and that's light and dark, is that well, how I understand? Well, not quite. Okay.
0: Not quite. Uh, it's, it's basically summer is... The, Basically defined by when it's warm enough for the Air National Guard to fly in. Okay, got it. So, so it has to be warmer than uh, minus 60 Fahrenheit. Okay. (laughs) And then colder. So basically, it's four months of summer and eight months of winter, which also involves the all the the six months of darkness.
3: Got it. Okay. All right.
2: And and you were wondering, how, how did she get all the items she forgot? And she goes, "Well, Amazon." But actually, I was the Amazon because every day. She'd send me a huge list of all the stuff she forgot. And, <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> so and, much for your weight limit. Exactly. And, and not, not only the stuff she forgot, All everybody else was funneling through her to get all the stuff they wanted too. Like, oh, there's some uh, great chocolate bars in uh, New Zealand. You better be sure to pick up a few hundred for us. And uh, don't don't forget to bring lots of wool. I forgot. I'm mean, going to learn how to knit. And then uh, the, the list just kept growing. You know, and an alarm clock. Anything
3: you can think of. <laughs> so you actually became kind of the corner store? Is that that's what I understand, it.
2: John?
1: And and where are those drones when we need them?
2: Exactly, exactly. That that, that was my middle name.
1: <laughs> John, I'm going to uh, remind our listeners for just a second, this is Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, where we are. I'm your host. I'm here with Jeff Klein, and we're speaking this hour with John Bird and Jennifer McCollum. Co-authors of the book, One Day, One Night, about their year at the South Pole. And now to take us uh, to the South Pole, the Amundsen-Scott base, named after the two people who were first there, I think it was 1911. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong on that year, but I think that's about right. Uh, And you spent the year in what you call a dome with 50 other researchers and jeff and i know from having spent uh, this week in antarctica and other places the himalayas included that there's this kind of there's a cycle to that experience exp- at least when it's over a couple weeks a lot of excitement at the end and by the end with a few <laughs> incidents in between a lot of bonding uh but our teams are smaller so you had 50 and you were there for a year so just describe call it the the annual cycle what it was like to be with 50 other people in a dome. You got out some, I know, uh, for a total of 12 months. Jennifer, why don't we start with you?
0: Sure. Um, Well, uh, the the, the summer has about uh, 225 people coming and going, and they're from all over the world. So the summer is just a a very busy time, people are very high spirits, there's lots of parties, there's, you know, there's science talks, there's lots of outdoor activities, you know, skiing, and we had, you know, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, and New Year's, and Halloween, any excuse for a party, you know, Um, and Lots of interesting people to talk to, um, and it was mm. very, very, very busy. So it was, you know, you had shifts 24 hours a day working um, because they were constructing uh, the new station then, and so it was very busy. Um, and then when the station closed and the last plane left, um, there there came to be a very subdued atmosphere, mm. um, but people still were in pretty good spirits, um, And then in April, our doctor fell very ill, and we almost lost him. Um, And we also ran out of salt at the same time. So, so we were faced with basically the first ever uh, winter medevac. Uh, Jerry Nelson was um, the doctor rescued with breast cancer was re- was mm-hmm. taken out two weeks before station opening. But we actually had a plane land in the middle of winter, so there was huge logistics with that. And then also with running out of salt, people became very, very whiny, and uh, it kind of the it, things kind of turned. Um, although our station manager did manage to get salt in with some haranguing through the rescue, (laughs) so that really helped. Um, But then winter, you know, the whole eight months of winter, um, we had, with the darkness, we were in the high season of the aurora, so that was really incredible, but people kind of, a lot of people, I'd say about 20% of the people on station went crazy, and a lot, you know, you start kind of losing your bearings, and you know, your judgment and you can get upset a lot more easily about things. So, so it was amazing being a couple there with John because, you know, he, he really kept me sane, you know, and, and I was, I was at the lo- the uh, lowest of the totem pole there. So, so that had its own set of challenges. Um, but there was lots of activities there, although a lot of people drank and watched videos. So, so there was a lot of positive, interesting things, but it was it was a pretty long haul, you know, and it really t- took a lot of stamina and determination to really have a good attitude and, and make the most of being at such a magical place.
1: Jennifer, thanks on that. I almost felt like I was there. John, what would you add?
2: Well, she's right that there were um, a lot of activities in the summer when everybody is uh, setting up their experiments, so you have all these... Uh, teams coming down from the various universities to get things going, which was uh, uh, true in my case as well with the University of Illinois folks coming down Mm. to get everything staged and ready to go. And since my experiment was somewhat uh, automated, I was able to spend more time helping other people, including uh, a lot of time washing dishes for Jennifer so that her time was... (laughs) freed up to do some of her other activities which included uh, setting up some some orchestras and, and some uh, singing quartets and other musical endeavors and it also gave me the time to go around the station and help out with every other job on the station so
3: hmm.
2: it was really a unique opportunity and that's how we knew we really had to take advantage of this to make the notes that were detailed enough to produce this book.
1: John, who kept order, so to speak? So you're 50 individuals, but there are no doubt was some kind of a decision-making hierarchy or some kind of maybe even leadership among you. Yep. So describe that if you would.
2: Sure. There's a station manager who is in charge out of the entire <coughs> station, and they report to their Uh, head office in Denver, and they had meetings every week with all the uh, other managers of various different departments, including uh, construction, uh, science, and... Kitchen. Yeah, maintenance, kitchen, and the doctor. So... It was well organized that way, really, and they kept track of how much fuel they were using and how much they were using Mm -hmm. in terms of food and supplies, well, except for salt. (laughs) And
0: And chocolate chips (laughs) and mushrooms. Yeah, the
1: list is getting longer here. (laughs) Right,
0: but then uh,
2: the scientists, uh, including myself, would report back to our universities where the principal investigators would tell us what they needed in terms of data, if there were to be any changes or modifications to the experiments. And so people were relatively autonomous.
1: That's great. Jennifer, want to add? Um,
0: well, I, I suppose uh, from, from being at uh, the... Well, I mean, I was, I was officially the dining attendant. Um, so I looked after the space where it was the meeting space for everybody. So I tried to keep a positive uh, space for people to come and go. And I think um, I, had, I had an excellent boss. I had a young 24-year-old hard-drinking boss but he was flexible and he kind of threw out the rules of head office and said let's just all work together and do what makes sense.
3: And John, I heard a quick reference to this um so I, I just wanted to to bring it to light a little bit more at, at at what point did you and Jennifer decide that you might write a book mm-hmm. about this this experience?
2: Well, we we recognized that immediately as as soon as uh we were accepted to these these appointments because I had some uh, history as a journalist. I had some experience writing. I wrote another book about the atmosphere for NASA, and I had written a number of articles, and then of course my scientific papers. Yeah. And so we knew that this was going to be a, a great story with a start and a, you know, in some science, and as well as an intriguing life and the conclusion. So, I, I well, didn't
0: I didn't really quite buy that right away. I, I I'm not an experienced writer, or I guess I wasn't. Uh but but John's like, Oh yeah, we'll write a book and then he would hound me to uh keep a journal.
3: Mm. And what was that what was that hounding like? Was, is that something that you were <laughs> able to develop into a rhythm?
0: <laughs> well, I mean there, part of part of him washing dishes was, was that I would go back <laughs> and I'd write but then but then and and you know he would but first the hounding first started through emails because i arrived at the south pole more than a month ahead of him
3: oh wow okay so
0: so he he would you know are you writing are you writing down your experiences and you know he'd he'd send me he's john has has you know he's got a sly sense of humor um but but soon i figured out that you know what this journaling is keeping me sane. Mhm. You know, it turned out that it it was a it was a very it it turned out to be very important because if I felt like I was at the boiling point, which, you know, happened a number of times or people were driving me crazy, I I go sit down and poke fun at them through writing and it would and it would, you know, diffuse my frustration.
3: It it kept you out of the 20%, is what I'm hearing, is that right?
0: I pretty much
3: I hope so. Well, maybe Michael issue, he can issue a verdict on that at the end of the interview. Okay. Uh, And
1: we're going to take a break in about a a minute. Uh, As we come back, um, I think we're going to get you talking more now again about that, um, let's just call it that long night. And really interested in some of the methods you use to keep focused and keep conversation and keep spirits up. John mentioned at the top as we got going here that uh, this was a second choice after going to Mars. That's even a longer trip. I think it's three years or so round trip. So there's great interest, I think, uh, on our part and more generally in the issue of how you, in a situation that is confining, uh, there are people, but it's definitely confining in this case without even salt, how you kept uh, your wits about you. So we're going to come back to that. I just, yeah, Jeff, go ahead.
3: I I was going to say that before we end the interview, Jennifer, we would like to know where you hid the salt.
1: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) there it is. (laughs) Sorry, Jennifer. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, listen, everybody, I'm Mike Yuseem You're listening to Leadership in Action. I'm here with Jeff Klein. Stay tuned. We're going to have more of this discussion with John and Jennifer after the break as they continue their year in Antarctica. So that's us, Channel 111. Stick around. We're going to be back in two minutes. Thank you. Welcome back to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host. I'm here with Jeff Klein. We both work um, on leadership issues here at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. And we've been talking with John Byrd and Jennifer McCollum, who spent a year at the South Pole, Uh, It's called the Amundsen-Scott Base. They've written a a book about their one year there called One Day, One Night, Portraits of the South Pole.
3: So one of the things I was uh, curious about is I'm just thinking about this incredibly unique experience that John and Jennifer, you you both shared. Um, And and I'm wondering, you know, if... if, (laughs) I'm, w- I'm wondering about culture, right, and and what the culture is like um, at the dome, and the ways in which uh, you know culture is kind of transmitted to, uh, or sustained, right? But transmitted mm-hmm. to uh, you know new participants, new residents there, and and so uh, just curious, are there are there traditions that help with your um, your introduction and your uh, maybe. Not, not grasping the right word exactly here, but yeah, you're
2: trying to see how we were assimilated into. Yeah, the thank you. Yeah. as newcomers. Well, it's a good point. Like one example would be the language. It, they have mm. their own unique terms for everything. A lot of which has been adopted from navy terms because originally <laughs> it was a navy base, and the terms have stuck ever since. So, for example, you'd have berthing and the galley.
3: And tell us a little bit. What are those? As you, as you. Oh talk-
2: well, yeah. The berthing is is the accommodation place where people are sleeping, and the galley is the kitchen, et cetera. Got it. And but there's there's pages and pages of the of these terms.
3: And does did, did somebody send you a, a glossary, mm-hmm. or is it more of an on-the-job education? It's
2: more, yeah, on-the-job. Well, mind you, we did make our own glossary. It's in the back of the book. But we just gradually uh, picked it up, and and you can see how. The, the culture is, is somewhat identified by by its language. You can see what kind of things people are getting into.
3: Sure, sure. And and you know what? What about some of the other aspects of culture? You know, kind of how do, how do you learn behaviorally, sort of what's okay, what's not okay?
2: Hmm. Well, there were, there are various cliques, like as as Jennifer described in the book. There were what was it? He, he called it. She called it the uh, the angry man's young young angry men's table. And the scientists' table, there's a bit of a cliques forming, Mm -hmm. especially in the summertime.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Kind of by interest.
3: The the cliques are forming by interest?
0: Yeah, and I I think, too, especially while we were there, because there was construction going on, you had a lot of construction workers and a lot of science people, and they stayed fairly separate, um, kind of doing their own thing. um, And... You know, um, so the science people, a lot of the science people, they did, you know, they, they did astronomy. They had classes um, for ground school classes. Um, we had Sunday science lectures. Um, and, so, and some of the um, construction people were, were interested in that. But I, I found that a lot of the construction people spent more of their time drinking you know when watching videos and that sort of thing um and um but i i mean a lot of the science people you know you know s- spent quite a bit of time doing that sort of thing too but but i think their time was you know was a little bit more creative creatively spent right. often yeah
3: right and and there's not like a unifying volleyball tournament that everybody comes together to to um compete in
0: um no, so there, there was people that liked to play uh, volley bag. We had volley bag ah. um, and people, and we had a, a traverse wall because people weren't allowed above six feet just because of concerns over injuries at the South Pole, that kind of thing. Right. Um, there was um, a person who was uh, teaching Kwon Do, another of the science people. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, I I was involved in a number of music activities um, with 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 both a you know a mix of construction and science and, and communications um, mm-hmm. people um, just and that that it, it seems like music is kind of a a language everybody speaks and everybody enjoys. Um, we had I, when when the station first closed, I, I think a, a very classic activity that kind of bound us all together uh, was egg dipping. <laughs> So we, we had, I can't remember how many cases of eggs we had, but we, we, we had a lot of cases. Maybe it was 180 dozen eggs, I think it was. And, uh, and to help preserve them, we all dipped them in oil. And of course, you know, egg fights erupt, and I think it was started by the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and then another, another, another activity um, in the middle of winter, which um, I, I think really pulled us together, um, was the 300 Club. Um, And uh, the 300 Club is is when the temperature uh, drops to minus 100 Fahrenheit. Uh, They heat up the sauna to 200 degrees Fahrenheit. They Mm. they trick the thermometer. Mm. And I I can tell you, you feel like you're going to die. And then you run outside to the South Pole, the geographic South Pole, naked and back. So, what better way to join a club? You know, you really feel like you join something when you do that. And, and, and you know, and all these guys, you know, they want to like when the, the girls we went separately, but you know, they, they have to make sure we're safe. So there's a lot of guys out there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jennifer, you guys had so, all the
3: fun. Yeah, we're we're 36 minutes into this interview, and the 300 club is just coming up now. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jennifer, you're in, in the role that you were playing. You said you're managing the common space. Um and so I I I'm going to guess that there's some observation right that you're doing and you're understanding the way people are using the the space. Um what did you learn from that role and what were some of the ways that you know you uh you decided or or you attempted to make the the space more accommodating for the residents?
0: That can, can you repeat the question?
3: Sure. I, the, the first part of it is, as somebody who is responsible for the space, you know, I, I imagine you're you're observing the ways in which it's being used. And so the the first part of the question, because I think I asked you three yeah. at once, there yeah, is sorry,
0: yes, ab- absolutely. <laughs> um, so so first of all, um, coming into that space, I, I was a master student. I took I took time off to come down to the South Pole studying mm-hmm. music composition. So so. So I, I came from, you know, feeling, you know, pretty good about myself, being well-respected, and I came and started working at the lowest, you know, at the lowest of the to- on the totem pole. Mm-hmm. And so, so my observations, especially in the summer with all the people coming and going, is that there were people who treated me like I was on the lowest, you know, the, the bottom of the totem pole, and then there were people who treated me like a person. Right. Um... So, and I, and from, from the point of view of writing the book, you know, you have John wandering to all the job sites, and then you have me observing everything in the common space. Right. Um, So it was incredible. And, and in the end, I I think I I almost have to turn the tables a bit on you. I discovered that the place, it had to be safe for me, for me to create a safe place for everybody else. And I, and I remember kind of, you know, in the middle of winter, a lot of people were whining, and people were making complaints to the station manager about me, and, and we had our midwinter reviews, and he gave me quite a hard time. And and, and, I, and and, I'm the kind of person who I've been told that I speak truth to power, mm-hmm. you know, I, and, and especially living at the South Pole. You know, I'm not always really good at taking care of myself in everyday life or I'm not good at addressing problems. I can let, let things slide. But I, I recognize that the South Pole, I couldn't do that mm-hmm. because, you know, you will go crazy. And um, so, so what I, so, but he wouldn't back down and I wasn't too happy. And, and he said, well, you know, if you have a problem, write to Denver. And I wasn't happy with that at all. So in the end, I, I wrote a speech and my, my immediate supervisor didn't su- support that. John didn't support it, but I insisted I had to do that. And in the end, I got up and I told people, this is my job. I'm trying to make all of you comfortable. And you're giving me a really hard time. And all these problems, here's how you need to deal with it. And and then when, and when you talk about leadership, you know, there's, the leadership, you know, there's the station manager. But then, if you think about like uh, Native American communities, you mm-hmm. know, you have the elders. Mm-hmm. So there's always there's always the elders in the community that aren't the official leaders. Yep. And so the elder in the community, he stood up. He was the kind of the station science mm-hmm. leader or manager, but he stood up and he said, "I support you." And so that really turned my winter around, and that really helped me to confidently go about and really be able to create a safe, welcoming environment for people to come and go. And they felt like they knew how to interact and make it a good place for everybody else.
3: Oh, what a great story. And, and Jennifer, you should know, one of the things that um, I am fascinated with is mm-hmm. the phenomenon of followership and the way that that enables you know, individuals, not just designated leaders, but individuals throughout organizations really to, to take chances and to self authorize, um, you know, to try and make a change or make a difference. And it, it sounds like you got some incredible followership from someone uh, who had a lot of informal authority and informal influence within the community.
0: Oh, absolutely. And we had a, another uh, major, we had one of our, I worked with two cooks. Um, so there was my boss, my young boss, and then there was another cook hired that when he arrived just before the start of winter, I knew he was an alcoholic. I knew it. Um, but, you know, they they had all their bodies filled and weren't interested in hearing my feedback. And so we had a major disaster. You know, he, would, he wouldn't show up at work for hours, and he was very, he was scary to work with. There was a lot of challenges, um, but my young boss really supported me and he allowed me to basically not work alone with this guy right you know and and he really made a lot of accommodations for me um and then at one point he uh passed out on the plateau and it was pitch black the moon was down you can't even see your feet like you're you're walking in a void and and one of the fellows on station accidentally tripped over him Wow! He, he literally ran into him. There's a lot of space out there on the plateau. You know, it, it's just unbelievable. And he was forbidden from drinking anymore. And then he almost quit because he was so angry with how he'd been treated. Uh, but my boss and I were able to work together, and we had been picking up after him, and you know, really flex, you know, really trying our best to hold a cohesive kitchen unit. And once he stopped drinking and. We were kind to him and supporting him. We all we all pulled it together. So it wasn't really thanks to any official leadership. Yeah. But 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 we really held the kitchen together and made it a safe place for the the cook who was really struggling.
1: Jennifer, thank you, Annette. I do want to remind listeners that this is leadership in action. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm with Jeff Klein, and we're talking with you, Jennifer McCollum, and John Byrd. Uh, you are the authors of a book, One Day, One Night: Portraits to the South Pole. And with a few minutes to go before we do have to bring the evening to a close, I'm going to take us um, out of our orbit here and ask you to give us some guidance. If Jeff and I were on the first flight complements of, let's say, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos to Mars, uh, we got three years ahead of us, and offer a couple consultative suggestions as we uh, head to the spacecraft. We're about to take off, and Jeff, I think we're taking plenty of salt, but on top of that, John, why don't you get us going? What have you learned from the South Pole that would help us get to Mars?
2: Well, I think one thing you could do is to take detailed notes so that you'll be ready to write your book when okay. you get back. <laughs>
1: All right, Jeff, got that? we have got to keep a diary. I want you to keep a diary. And, and it, by the way, I'm you, already telling uh, Jeff what to do here. He's not washing the dishes, though. Uh,
2: <laughs> during the voyage, too, because it'll, uh, it'll, it'll kind of contextualize what you're hmm. doing at the time, and you'll realize that you this is a unique, rare opportunity. You don't, you don't want to miss it. And so, by yeah. writing it down, you're helping to focus on what you're experiencing at the time, and it's an opportunity to capture it.
1: Yep, Jennifer, your guidance.
0: I think it's really important to um, know the people you're going with really well and to have really worked hard uh, with professionals, with coaching, um, of how to communicate because I think at the end of the day you need to be able to confidently uh, communicate, you need to be able to... uh, be able to share your opinions yet have other people be willing to be swung by other people because at the end of the day, you know, people back on earth can help you, but you're really on your own. And, uh, And so that's communication is number one. And in fact, during the summer while I worked in the kitchen, I was working with about 13 chefs. I didn't really feel... I was that well treated, and so when I heard a um, a psychologist was being flown into the station, I went and talked to my supervisor, and I said, could we have some communication training? And she jumped at the idea, and when so the two cooks and I, we sat down and with our supervisor before she flew out, and the psychologist, we sat down, and I think that meeting with the psychologist really set the tone for a positive mm-hmm. winter, so I think... Communication is everything, and also be able to have be able to keep yourself busy, having interests.
3: And um, maybe a, a final question for me as we start to wind down here. But I'd be curious—you know, you go through this kind of um, adversity, both as individuals and then and then together as a couple. Uh, I'd be curious about what you learned about yourself, um, and then what you learned about your your partnership that continues to help you today and john maybe we'll start with you there
2: well um it does help to have a partner because uh then you're able to uh dis- discuss all the various nuances of the day and you're able to uh, more easily handle any of the stresses from down there and as a result you can actually not only be relaxed but enjoy your time and mm-hmm. uh have lots of fun activities we mm-hmm. had most of the people actually did have a fun activity, but they are fun, fun times and uh, like Jennifer is saying it's partly as a result of having hmm. the uh, communications so if yeah. you, if you're there with somebody you know, then you have better communications and therefore you know have a better time
3: and then Jennifer, did you discover anything about maybe yourself that you hadn't known before you went?
0: Well, I, I think I, I was a lot more resilient than I than I realized, and and uh, I was, yeah, I I I really and I I just loved the experience of transformational relationships, and I and I certainly have to say that you know, having a, having John there to talk with. And we did. We did some. He, you know, I'd be tired from all the day work, and he'd always get me out. Aurora photography. One day, we we snuck out and made a seventy-foot pendulum to see the Earth turn. And we, <laughs> we he he helped me have a lot of fun.
1: That's great. So um, listen, Jennifer, that's a very good personal note to end on. Want to thank uh, you, and same for you, John. Thank you for the personalization there at the end. Really appreciate your being on our show tonight. And for listeners who want to get a copy of your book, let me repeat the title. One Day, One Night, Portraits of the South Pole. How would they go about that?
0: Amazon.com.
1: It's that easy. And it's going to be delivered unless you're at the... Amundsen Scott South Pole <laughs> Base okay thanks so much for being on the program we really appreciate it yeah
0: thanks Mike thanks
1: Jeff okay
0: That's wonderful thank you so much all
1: right Jennifer thanks uh, thanks, Jennifer thank John and all right um, friend here in the studio Jeff Klein why don't we pull our thoughts together and let's begin with John Bird and Jennifer McCollum we've been speaking with them <laughs> for the last 45 minutes or so about their year in Antarctica. So, a couple thoughts that may affect how you behave on the way to Mars together, Jeff. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, Mike, I, I'd be happy to go to Mars with you. Okay. I think I I do have a little negotiation to do with my kids and family and okay. everything everything. But um, it'll be great. Uh, I'll bring uh, enough uh, salt. Uh, <laughs> that'll all work really well. Uh, you know, I I mean, it, it, it's kind of amazing. We I really appreciated this conversation with with John and Jennifer and and it it strikes uh some familiar themes even though the setting is so unfamiliar when you think about an 8 month winter um and 6 months of darkness and things like that and you know the the first thing we've we've mm. talked so often on the show about how the the work to manage adversity or manage crisis has to happen before the adversity and before the crisis yeah. right and and so um, <clears throat> I really appreciated Jennifer's points just around look like let's get communication right, let's get team building right, um, and and let's do that before the going gets too tough because we're going to need to rely on on those patterns and those practices going forward. Um, you know, I uh, John's point about hmm. the role that something like journaling or you know some kind of practice of reflection. Is going to uh, play, right? Especially when you're in these intense environments. Um, Yes, you know, I I appreciated his candor in saying, you know, absolutely, journaling helped us write the book, but more importantly, it kind of helped us stay level. Um, The highs weren't too high, the lows weren't too low. Uh, We were able to really contextualize the experience we were having.
1: Jeff, great thoughts there, and I've got almost the same, as I listed out uh, the points for me, almost the same points. I've got five. Uh, number one, we all want a safe, welcoming environment. It took a little while to build that there, but um, both Jennifer and John said that that was important for them in, in so many words there. Know the people you are going with. Often we don't have much of a choice. I think many of the people that did come there, they didn't pick uh, either way around. But to the extent that you can at least get acquainted before you get off the airplane in Antarctica, a really good idea. And we've had a person on the program here, Jeff, you know well, who has worked with uh, the NASA flight teams on the space shuttle. And the custom in that pre-work before they would launch was to take the team, seven astronauts, uh, off into the wilderness, let them get to know each other under that circumstance before they ended up in space. Learn how to communicate. Uh, Jennifer had a very nice uh, incident described where uh, uh, everybody worked uh, more strenuously or more vigorously on effective communication. Tough environment, deal with it. They did. Got to give them a lot of um, credit for going into a very challenging environment and making the best of it. And my last point, I wrote this down. Uh, our spouses coming. W- our spouses are coming with us to Mars. Okay.
3: <laughs> that sounds. That sounds perfect. Okay. Yeah. that's I, it's unclear to me at this at this particular juncture whether I'll be joining the three hundred club with you or not, Mike.
1: <laughs> oh, Okay, <laughs> I love that the three hundred club. Uh, for extra credit, a listener can call in and, and tell us what that means. That's extra credit, though. Right, right. So, okay, Sidney Finkelstein, written a book about how effective leaders are great teachers. What do you have from Sidney Finkelstein? Well,
3: I, um, you know conversation with sydney i think was uh really illuminating and and re- really reinforced uh you know something like that you and i talk about all the time um i don't think it's just <laughs> in a self-serving way since we identify as teachers um you know but as we as we got into that conversation and and really understood that all right to be if to be a great leader you have to be a Teacher as well. In order to be a teacher, you've got to be a conscious learner. And I, I loved Sydney's point about great learners, great teachers having both curiosity as well as courage. Right? Curiosity to seek out new knowledge, um, and then the the courage to be vulnerable, which which means admitting you don't know everything. Um, you know, he went on and and really talked about some of these almost paradoxical combinations of traits that he thought great leaders had and and so he was he was coupling you know tremendous confidence with humility and and a powerful singular vision with that you know curiosity as well and and you know so often I think we we try to reduce the traits that great leaders show into either or choices and I I love that that Sidney could present these traits that, that might in some ways be in conflict with each other as, as ultimately reinforcing.
1: Jeff, really interesting. And let me compliment in the sense of adding to what you've said. First of all, teaching is vital for leading. The title of his article and it framed much of our discussion. Uh, Sub point on that, the, uh, the best teachers are the best leaders, Feedback, a vital part of that. We've got to remember that teaching is two-way, and taking feedback is uh, the other way. Very important. Sydney offered a couple questions I never thought of before, but I thought they were great for helping you to help your boss help you. Uh, Question number one, what is the best thing that I can do for you? Speaking now to your boss or the person that you're working with even. And question number two, what can I do? How can I help? to make you more successful, speaking uh, to your boss. And it's a way of the, now the learner, really helping the teacher be more effective at teaching. So it's a two-way story. I'm gonna also end on his reference, really interesting, to the combination of confidence and humility. It takes both, we gotta put them together. So, Jeff, that's uh, pretty much it for the evening. 15 seconds, final thought from you.
3: I. Um the last point I wanted to make was was really around the kinds of teaching. And and I thought he does – within the article, he just does a really nice job of of maybe differentiating some of those points. So leaders teach professionalism. They they teach specific points of craft, and then they also teach life skills.
1: Super. I uh, want to thank every, thank you on that, uh, Jeff. want to thank listeners for listening. This is, of course, Business Radio, Sirius XM. We're the Wharton School. You can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111. A special thanks to our guest tonight, Sidney Finkelstein, John Bird, and Jennifer McCollum. I want to thank our producer, as always, Patty Hall, for her great job, uh, as well as our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis, the music compliments of her and many other fac- facets of what we're doing. So thanks to Patty. Thanks to Tatiana. I am Mike Useem. I'm here with Jeff Klein. You have been listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Sirius XM Radio, Channel 111.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.